Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of Real Atheology. I'm Justin Schieber, and in this episode, Ben Watkins and I talk with Ozymandias Ramses II on competing contemporary definitions of the word atheism. Ozymandias Ramses II has a YouTube channel of the same name where he makes informative videos discussing issues surrounding the Great Debate. So if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Ozzy's YouTube channel as well as the Real Atheology YouTube channel. So without further delay, here is that interview. So I pose the question to you, Ozzy, why philosophy of religion? Well, uh, in my case, uh, it's because I had a religious upbringing. Um, and because I uh, acquired an interest in philosophy independently of my interest in religion. So uh, that was later in life. So I started off as a believer. I started off uh, essentially as a fundamentalist. I had a, the religious uh, doctrinal upbringing of a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and uh, so that was the religion of my, of my childhood. And then I sort of fell out of my faith somewhere in my mid-teens. And then I went through a uh, sort of a profoundly long period of agnosticism that lasted a, a few years. I say long because it was rather agonizing for me, um, of agnosticism and then sort of a, a kind of weak deistic position, um, and then back and forth between those two for a while, and then until finally I, I came to the realization or the conclusion that there, there's probably not any gods of any kind. And so around the age of 18, I started self-identifying as an atheist, uh, this was happening in, in the context of, uh, of, of Quebec in, in Canada, uh, where self-identifying as an atheist isn't, isn't particularly problematical. So I didn't get a lot of pushback, and by then I was in college, I was, I was in university, I wasn't living with my parents or anything, so there wasn't a lot of resistance to it. So that was fairly easy. Uh, and I started off in university interested in psychology. I later switched into a liberal arts program. Um, where we were, it was one of those great books programs where you read as many of the classics as possible. You start with the Bible and you sort of work your way up through the, the canon of, uh, of Western uh, intellectual history. And in the course of those three years, I found myself increasingly interested in the philosophical works, more than the literary works, more than even the scientific works, uh, um, or anything else. And uh, so when I came to doing, going on to grad school, I... Uh, enrolled in a master's program and then a PhD program in philosophy. Um, I hasten out, I don't have a PhD by the way, I, I left academia before I completed my PhD. So when I went into university, uh, into grad school to study philosophy though, I was interested primarily in the philosophy of mind, epistemology, and the philosophy of language. I wasn't at all interested in the philosophy of religion, but I was always interested in the question of religiosity, uh, why people are religious and its consequences on, on society. When I left academia, um, I, I found myself sort of immersed back uh, in the in the workaday world with with people who were not philosophers. And really, the only philosophical question that seems to animate people out there are either moral questions or religious questions. And even the moral questions often devolve uh, on or turn on the question of God's existence. Um, and so I found myself uh, increasingly uh, arguing for why. I thought atheism was true and why I thought uh, every variety of theism was, was false or likely to be false. Um, and so this started online, um, mostly in online chat rooms. And so while I had not specifically studied the philosophy of religion, although I had been a teaching assistant in a course in the philosophy of religion and had done quite a bit of reading, I had not specialized in that. 
I just started doing more and more reading on the subject just to um, sort of up my own game uh, in these discussions. Um, so the reason why I'm interested in the philosophy of religion is because I started off rel religious and I sort of have a, a sort of soft spot for the religious mindset, even though I think it's mistaken. I, it's not so alien to my own understanding that I, I can't identify with, with the religious. Uh, and I think it's enormously consequential. So quite apart from the, you know, my own biographical reasons why I'm attracted to it, I think that moral questions are very important, political questions are very important, and a lot of people's moral and political opinions rest on, uh, among other things, their religious views or, or whether they're not religious. And so I think it's actually important that people have some understanding of these, these, these questions, the arguments for and against God's existence, and, um, and what those imply for the rest of life, the larger questions in life, the existential questions, the moral questions, and so forth. So th that's why I'm interested in, in the Great Debate. I actually think it's very, very consequential. It, it affects everything from social policy to sort of workaday decisions about how to conduct ourselves. So I agree with you fully. The question of the existence of God is a particularly consequential question. You know, obviously we have reasons to think in the actual world God doesn't exist, but I'm curious if you wish that you did live in a world where a God did exist. Uh, well, that would depend entirely on, on the God in question. If it was a, one of the God of the Abrahamic faiths, all I can say is I'm, I'm relieved that such a God doesn't exist as far as I'm, I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if it was a deistic God, if, if, this, if this world was an artifact, if the world was created by a powerful intelligence that was no longer um, involved or intervening in any way, um, that's not objectionable to me in any way. And it's not because it wouldn't sort of interfere, it's that it would actually, it would actually be, uh, I think, a more attractive view, actually. Uh, I think the, the view that I hold now, atheism, as, a, as, as I hold it, is... Um, means that the, 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 there's nothing outside of our physical reality that invests our lives uh, with meaning. Um, and it would be kind of nice, actually, if there was an, a grand overarching purpose that wasn't objectionable or ridiculous. Um, and so if there was an artificer, some, some great being, you know, um, if we're sort of in a matrix, for instance, right, and, um, and there's, a, there's a creator god in some meta, you know, reality, that has arranged everything around us, uh, including ourselves, and we're sort of free to navigate in this world like like Sims in a simulated reality. If that were the kind of God that we were talking about, that wouldn't be objectionable. In fact, it might make the my outlook on life look actually. It might be more positive. It might be more appealing. To me. You know, the world wouldn't look like happen so much happenstance. It would look more like like artistry. It's the difference between looking at something and thinking it was it just happened that way and looking at something and going, oh, that beautiful thing that I see over there, it was, it was created to be beautiful, for instance, right? I ask that question because sometimes, you know, if, you know, if we think about the reasons we don't believe in God, you know, we're going to be appealing most of the time to, you know, facts about the actual world, but to consider whether or not we'd be in a world where there was a perfect person, it seems to me like, yeah, that that would be a better state of affairs because the world would be better and we'd have access to a morally perfect person. Um, but then you get sometimes these objections about privacy, for example. You know, this notion that, oh, I wouldn't want that to be the case. There would be no such thing as privacy on a view where there's an omniscient being. Some people find that kind of thing compelling. I, I don't find that particular kind of uh, counterpoint 
to be compelling. Yeah, neither do I. I mean, it, I mean, I, I, I like the fact that my thoughts are effectively inviolable um, from everybody around me because those people are in a position to interfere if they could read my thoughts, and uh, I would be embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed myself at some of my own thoughts sometimes, especially when I look back at some of the things I used to believe, for instance. Um, but uh, I mean, if there was some you know grand creator that, that brought everything into existence, I I presume that 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 such an entity uh, would not be uh, in, in, inclined to to interfere with my life in petty ways the way my neighbor might if they knew what was going on inside my head. So I would be untroubled by that. That that would not bother me. That would, God would be a perfectly a loving being, so he would never hold any sort of judgment against you for your thoughts. But in fact, would be sort of like a, a you know a perfect parent who would help guide you through. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Um, that would be, but we might also be uh, sort of in the grips of a malevolent deity, right? I mean, we could, we might live sure. in the worst of all possible worlds, not the best of all possible worlds, uh, and in which case, uh, you know, every bad thought you had or every good thought you had um, <laughs> would be punished. <laughs> the deity is in question is going to dictate whether or not I am repelled or attracted to the idea of such a deity. So those qualifications we would we would certainly accept. Um, uh, we, we've mostly dealt with the God of traditional theism, the monotheistic God, um, just because that's what's found in the literature so much. Um, yeah, for better. And so it's, I, I, but I, I do like that distinction to be able to say, being able to say, well, I would like traditional theism to be true in the sense of if there's a, you know, universalist heaven or, you know, a perfectly loving being. But if we're going to talk about, the specific monotheistic faiths like Islam or Christianity, I would certainly agree. I, I wouldn't want the being described in those books to exist. Yeah, I, I would definitely con concur with that. I, I don't think the, the God posited in any of the Abrahamic faiths is particularly attractive. None of them strike me as moral, uh, even when people try to define them as moral um, or say that morality issues from the, the nature of, the, of this being. I find that completely uncompelling and, and, um, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take away the concern that, that we might have uh, about that deity behaving in certain ways that we presently would, would judge to be Immoral. So, I mean, again, it all depends on what God we're, we're talking about. But the God of the Abrahamic faith, I, I, I agree that those gods, they, uh, they're not appealing. I, I, I would not wish for those gods uh, to exist, but I, I, don't, I don't reject the existence of those gods on the basis that I, I don't like the sound of them. I reject right. them on the basis that I think that they don't make any sense. Um, I don't think that yeah. much is explained by positing these gods. I, there's a, a striking absence of evidence where evidence ought to be expected to be found. Um, in some cases, the attributes are, you know, uh, so vague and unspecified. Things like omnipotence and omniscience are, are so, such, these are such vague predicates that we don't actually know what we're describing. And even when people go to the trouble of, of specifying what they mean, very often the attributes, they don't cohere, they don't go together. <laughs> yeah, it's very difficult to find a coherent definition of those of those in a way that makes them all able to be descriptive of the same person. Right, right. I always cite um, God's perfect justice with his unsurpassable mercy. And so to, on the face of it, it seems like God gives everyone exactly what they deserve and gives no one exactly what they deserve. 
And so that to me right there just seemed, you know, now granted we could unpack that a bit and maybe we could, you know, make this in some coherent sense work, but it, on the face of it, it looks like there's a contradiction there. Yeah. Yeah. And another concern I have with all of those kinds of, of arguments where people try to specify what they mean by omnipotence and omnibenevolence and omniscience and divine simplicity and, you know, all these attributes that people want to sort of, you know, um, uh, lard their, their deity with, um, the problem with that is that all of those are mere stipulations, right? These are not discoveries that we have made, right. things we can demonstrate about this, right? Everything, every attribute about God, it would appear, is stipulative. Either it's described in a book or it's inferred from the book that this must be what the attributes are. But there's no discovery. There's no demonstration of, it, of any of this. And so, I mean, this is really the kind of thing, in my view, that often gives philosophy a bad name, the, the, the idea of sort of castles being built in the air. So much apologetics and theology strikes me uh, that way. It, it smacks of that sort of thing. So I guess that can we can kind of tie that into uh, one of the main things we wanted to talk about today is uh, what we mean by some of these labels. And... Um, Justin and I have certainly noticed, and I know that you've noticed and talked about it before in the past, um, that within the atheist community, there's a large movement towards what we mean when we say atheism or when we say that someone is an atheist. And they, they, this definition that they want to move to is a lack of belief in God. And so that's considerably different from how that that term has been understood historically so we have these two different ways of understanding the meaning of this word and which one should we take as the ordinary sense of this word um could you explain where you where you see some of the problems with this uh you've called it the lactheist uh definition of atheism yeah, there's a, a lot of problems, uh, as I see it, with this idea of atheism being defined as a mere lack of a belief in a god or gods. Um, so first, let me say a little bit about the, the traditional definition. I mean, the traditional definition of atheism is sort of handed down to us from, from a French word, atheism. Uh, that's, the French word was uh, for this was, was atheism. Uh, atheism was actually coined first, and then theism later. Oddly enough, we we tend to think that because there's the, there's these two roots, a and theism, that 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 the word theism was sort of in circulation, and then atheism was coined afterwards by a pen, or prefixing a to the word theism. But in fact, uh, theism is a word that came later. It's, it's rather counterintuitive, but so <laughs> the word atheism gets coined, and then only later do people say, well, if there's atheism, there's got to be theism. And uh, when whoever it was that first coined the, uh, the, this word seemed to be reaching back to a Greek word, uh, atheos, uh, and atheos means without God, but that word um, in the Roman world uh, where they spoke Greek was being applied to people like Christians. So clearly they weren't, they weren't applying atheos to people who were godless in the sense that they didn't believe in a God. They knew that Christians believed in a God. They were calling them godless in the sense that they were repudiating or rejecting or denying the gods of Rome. Um, I mean, that, you know, in a pagan world, um, theistic pluralism isn't a problem. They didn't have a problem with, uh, with people believing multiple gods, as long as among the other gods that you worship, you pay homage uh, to the gods of Rome. It's, it's, it's important. You have to propitiate these gods, otherwise they will be angry. Um, and of course, Christians wouldn't do this. Um, uh, they were effectively monotheistic and they would not uh, honor these other gods and so 
in that ancient world the word atheos was applied to people who believed in a god but they didn't believe they refused to to, to practice and believe in all of the gods um, and uh, so, so this was a, a real problem so the, the, the etymological argument that's often used um, to justify that atheism means simply lacking or without theism is, is incorrect. First of all, the word atheism came before the word theism. And secondly, the word atheos in, in the Greek was never applied to mean people who were entirely lacking in a belief in a god. It was actually applied to people who were theists, specifically monotheists. Um, so that the whole etymological argument is wrong on every front. I also think that, you know, these debates, you know, even if those arguments were correct, I also think that these debates should not be settled on etymological uh, concerns alone. I think that exactly. that there are broader concerns, mainly how it has been grown to be used, right? We have many words that, that are not uh, that are not used in the same way that they, that, you know, their etymology would suggest. And so... Um, that seems to be an underdeterminative factor, but yeah, it, I, I do hear that kind of response a lot, that this, that this is why we should use atheism in this broad, uh, lack theistic sense. Uh, I think it's particularly important be, um, because the different ways that we use the senses of the, of this word will refer to different concepts. So people can start talking, but you know, if, if someone's using atheist in the non-theist sense or this weak atheist sense, that's a very different concept than someone in the strong atheist sense who's saying, no, the claim is that God does not exist. Those are very, those are very different concepts. And if, you, if you've not set out at the beginning of a discussion what you mean by that term, you're, you're just going to introduce confusion which I think happens quite a bit. Yeah, um, um, and it actually is quite consequential when, it, when that confusion happens. Um, so, so the word atheism has traditionally been used to mean not a mere absence or lack or privation of, of, of believing in God, but the denial of theism, the rejection of theism, right? Uh, in, uh, if you look in philosophical dictionaries, for instance, like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, you'll see definitions that say, you know, the, the doctrine that God does not exist, or uh, the rejection or the denial of theism, and so forth. Um, and that's how it's been traditionally used. That's how it's been used literally for a few centuries, two to three centuries now, in modern languages. You know, not just English, but French and Spanish and Italian and, and so forth, right? All of these, uh, the cognate words for atheism in those various languages have always been used to, to designate those people to think that there isn't a god. Okay? Now that actually departs from the original usage way back in the Greek, atheos. Right. Um, and uh, so there's obviously, you know, words change. And so I, I take your point, Justin, that uh, words change and they change based on usage. Once people start using a word differently, then there can be a semantic shift. You know, I mean, a word can literally come to mean its opposite if enough people use it. Um, uh, to mean literally, it used to mean to mean, yeah, yeah. The word literally, <laughs> how literally now means figuratively, you know. Which, to be fair, I mean, if if that's true, then we might have to consider the possibility that we should start using atheism in the broad sense, if that's how most people are using it. But I'm not at all convinced that most people are using it in that way. When I come across people and they ask me, 
if I'm an atheist or if I tell them I'm an atheist, they seem to very often assume that I'm taking a position that God does not exist. Right. Um, they take it for some reason, they, they assume that I have certainty about this question, which I, I am quick to correct them on. But, but very often, I'm from me providing that information, they're concluding that I think that God does not exist. So I think that that's how it's. Yeah, and I mean, and this is vernacular usage. Okay, so I mean, if you go out in the street and you you know you, like, you tell people that you're an atheist, they're not going to think that you have never heard of a God, uh, right. or that you're on the fence about the existence of God. They're going to assume reasonably that you think that gods don't exist, or at least their God doesn't exist, among others. Mm-hmm. Um, so the vernacular usage out there, the popular usage, conforms perfectly with, with the technical usage that we find in the philosophy of religion, in philosophy generally, in theology. Uh, and that's because for centuries that's how the word has been used. Now, atheist activists, especially online, people like uh, American atheists, for instance, um, uh, these sorts of organizations recommend a, a much broader, more relaxed definition. Um, and uh, that I call lack theism, the lack uh, of theism, the, the simply not accepting theism, but not necessarily accepting that God doesn't exist, not affirming that God doesn't exist. And the difficulty that I see with that is that in the landscape of the great debate, of the various positions that exist, identifying yourself uh, by what you don't believe, right, saying that you are a non-theist, essentially. I mean, we've already got a word in English, by the way, for for that definition. Yeah, this concept coincides with the concept that we have for non-theist. I think that's the... Yeah, that's right. Like, the word non-theism has been in the language, was coined in, about in the 1850s. It's, it's, so the word is about as old as the word agnosticism. Mm-hmm. And and that, that, that word non-theism is literally defined as the lack of a belief in a god or gods. I mean, look in the sort of the the Compact Oxford uh, English Dictionary, and look up non-theism, you'll see the word is there. How could this yeah. word have been around for 150 or so years, and yet people don't call themselves non-theists generally? Why? Mm-hmm. But there's a reason. The reason is, when you say, I'm a non-theist, you're not telling a person what you actually think is the case with respect to God's existence. So if a person asks me, Ozzy, uh, what's your position on God's existence? And I say, I'm an atheist. Well, because I'm using the traditional definition, people know what I mean. They, they know what my position is. They, I, I think gods don't exist. And then we can probe and find out why I think that's the case and to what degree I'm confident that that's the case and so forth. And so it is for, for you, Justin, and presumably you also, Ben. But if I'm talking to, if someone is talking to Aaron Ra or David Silverman, the uh, former president of uh, American Atheists, uh, and you ask them, you know, what's your position? And they say, I'm an atheist. And, but then they say, but by atheist, I merely mean I'm a non-theist. Well, then it's unclear what their position is, because that would include people like me, right, who think there's no God. So maybe they think that there's no God, but maybe they're on the fence. Maybe they're undecided. Maybe they think, I can't make up my mind if there's a God. I'm, I'm literally on the fence. I can't, I, I, it's, it's, I'm undecided. It's inconclusive. I've reached no conclusion one way or the other. That I will not affirm that there is or isn't a God. That's what an agnostic is. That's why the word was coined, to differentiate it from atheism. Right? There were people Categorically. Back- you're not, we're not supposed to mix these, you know, because we see a lot of people want to say they're an agnostic atheist. Right. But these words that were coined, like words like agnostic, for instance, was coined specifically 
to produce mutually exclusive categories. We want to preserve these distinctions. We know what a theist is, it's someone who believes that there's a God. We know what an atheist is, it's someone who thinks there is no God. Well, what about the people who affirm neither that there is a God, nor do they affirm that there is no God? People who are undecided, who are inconclusive, who, for whatever reasons, good or bad, well, you know, they, might, they might have weighed the evidence and said, you know what, I don't find that there's good arguments on either side. And so they conclude that they have to withhold assent to both propositions, just as I would withhold assent if you ask me, I mean, what is the number of, of, of electrons in this cup of tea that I'm holding right, and drinking right now? Is it an even number of electrons or an odd number of electrons? Well, uh, I, I can't say. I have nothing to go on. And even if I had some arguments, if I, if I judged that the, the reasoning was inconclusive, then I would reach no conclusion. I would affirm neither. So an agnostic is not someone who doesn't know. It's someone who thinks that there isn't even enough reason to affirm, even tentatively or provisionally, that there is a God or there is no God, right? And that's why agnostics really bristle when atheists try to subsume them under the heading of atheism and say, well, if you're an agnostic, you are ipso facto uh, an atheist. Because these people are saying, no, 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 atheist has always meant people who think there's no God. I'm not one of those. I'm no more an atheist than I am a theist. Stop trying to subsume me under that, that heading. Um, so if a person says, I'm an atheist, but they use the lack theist, uh, the lack theism definition of atheism, or the non-theism definition of atheism, the difficulty is, I now don't know whether what their position is. Are they a person who thinks, yeah, there's probably no God, or definitely there's no God, or I have no position, I can't make up my mind? Or maybe the Huxleyan agnostic um, position might be theirs, the position that I don't know, I can't make up my mind right now one way or the other, neither position is rational, and no one ever will be in a position to know because that is an unanswerable question. Or perhaps they are a theological non-cognitivist, and they think, look, all God talk is nonsense, it's junk, it's all incoherent, and the, the discourse of God is, and theology is so muddled that we're actually not talking about anything. And consequently, the, the, the question, does God exist, doesn't have an answer. It is neither true nor, nor false. It has no propositional content. Hence, no, nobody has any business being a theist or an atheist, as they see it, or even an agnostic, because there's, there's no there there. It's not that there isn't a God. It's that the concept is meaningless. It's, it's just a jumble of words. It's, it's, not, even, it's not even wrong. It's not even wrong, exactly. It's not even <laughs> false. So for a theological non-cognitivist, they are a non-theist, but they don't go around thinking that there's no, no God. They don't think, I'm undecided. They think, you're not, you're, you're not even asking a question. That's not a question. That, there's no propositional content to there is a God, or there is no God, or there might be a God. Those sentences are literally meaningless, according to an ichthyist or a theological non-cognitivist. Mm -hmm. So if you define atheism so broadly and expansively as to include traditional atheists, um, fence-sitter agnostics, Huxleyan agnostics, atheists and theological non-cognitivists, then when a person asks you what's your position and you say I'm an atheist and that's your definition, you haven't answered their question. You have not stated what your position is. And I think the reason people do this, I think there's a, actually an unfortunate motive here, I think a lot of people come by this rather honestly because they've been told, they've been sold this definition and told ad nauseum that this is the correct definition. I think that the reason people are attracted to this definition is because 
if atheism is this umbrella, if it's a suitcase term that includes competing and distinct positions, then if a person says, you know, uh, why are you an atheist? Well, if they haven't actually said what their position is, if atheism so defined isn't a position at all, then of course there's no burden of justification. They don't have to give a reason, right? And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the appeal of this uh, of this lactheist definition of atheism. And I, and I think that's very unfortunate because it, it doesn't fool anybody. People want to know what is it what is your stance on the question of God's existence? Do you think it's true, or do you think it's false, or are you undecided? Or do you think the entire discourse is so confused and polluted that the question is literally meaningless, right? Uh, and there are actually other positions. But, so it, in my view, it, it doesn't make any sense. There's no specificity that is gained, no rigor, no precision. In fact, specificity, precision, and rigor is, is, has been sacrificed in order to cleave everything, and everyone rather, into a theist or not a theist. And, and just to see the force of this, imagine if a person asked you, or if you asked a person, what's your position on the great debate, on the question of God's existence? Where do you stand? Supposing they said to you, I'm a non-agnostic. <laughs> you would be wondering, wait, wait, does that mean you're a theist or an atheist or an, an igtheist? Like, you haven't told me what position you are. You just told me what you're not. Or imagine if... Um, uh, a, a person were to imagine a theist who, who defined theism as follows. Um, uh, theism is not a positive belief. It's not a positive claim. It's a negative claim. Uh, theism is the lack of belief in the non-existence of God. Now, if theism were to be defined that way, and I don't see why a theist couldn't define it that way if they wanted to, just like an atheist can define an atheist however they want. If a theist were to say that theism is the lack of a belief in the non-existence of God, then they'll say, well, I lack a belief in the non-existence of God. That's why I'm a theist. All theists lack a belief in the non-existence of God, do they not? There you go, right? That's that, that now is a, a, a person who has defined theism negatively. Does it follow that they don't have a burden of justification just because they've defined it negatively, because they stuck some knots in front of it and defined it as a lack of something, as a privation of something? No, of course not. That doesn't work. And it doesn't work when atheists do it. When the atheists say, by atheism I mean the lack of a belief in a god or gods, right? So. The difficulty I have, and the reason I coined the term lack theism, as opposed to just using the word non-theism for this particular broad definition, is because in my experience I, I, I see a lot of people who are atheists in the same sense that we all are, um, people who genuinely believe that there isn't a god, or probably isn't a god, people like um, David Silverman, um, uh, Aaron Ra, and you know, lots of people in, in, in the community. Uh, we see people like that, saying things like, gods are imaginary, gods are made up, gods are fictions, gods are the product of human imagination, gods are nonsense, gods are BS, and so forth. Now, if you, were, if you are saying something like that, you are in fact saying that reality includes no gods. That's a claim about reality. But claims about reality have a burden of justification, and now you're going to have to... So, you, I think what happens is people are talking out of both sides of their mouth. They want to... They, they, in their heart of hearts, actually think, as you and I do, that there aren't any gods. 
But then what they want to do is they want to play burden tennis. They want to say that only the other person has a burden of justification. Hide the ball with the burden of justification, I think, is the phrase you've previously used that I think is exactly right. I think a lot of, uh, we'll call them pop atheists, like to slide back and forth between those two concepts of the weak atheist and the strong atheist. And so when they're making claims, they're making claims in a, in a, that entail a strong atheist sense. That, that, that entail a, a burden of justification, but then when pressed to give a burden, you know, their justification for their belief, they slide to that weaker concept of atheism. They said, well, I just lack a belief. You can't prove a negative or, you know, you've heard the various arguments for, you know, once they've slid back to this weaker definition of atheism, they can give all sorts of excuses um, as to why they don't have any further burden of justification. I think one of the motivations for, for this position, um, and in fact I've heard this as, as one of the reasons in favor of it, is that very often in our conversations with theists and you know, about the justification for various beliefs, um, theists can on occasion have a tendency to kind of switch the burden of proof uh, you know, this is an impermissible move, and a way we can avoid this is to adopt this kind of lack theistic view. Uh, but I think that that's the wrong, that that's just the completely wrong approach. Right. Um, and I want to qualify this. I I don't want people to, to to take away from what from what I'm saying, and I presume you would you would agree with this that um, that people are doing this entirely cynically. But I think a lot of people have simply. Uh, come to this to accept this definition and this sort of strategy because um, they uh, well first of all they have just heard atheism defined broadly as non-theism so often that, that it strikes them as a truism that this is simply the definition and that right, this is right. the, the correct uh, or original usage or something like that based on etymology uh, but the other reason I think is that they they have a an incorrect picture or understanding of the principle of burden of proof. We have this expression, burden proof, right, uh, which comes from the Latin onus probandum. Okay, and we translate that as burden of proof. And But people don't want the burden of proof when it comes to atheism because they know, look, proving, I mean, demonstrating conclusively and absolutely that any and all gods are non-existent. Well, that's a pretty heavy burden. I, I wouldn't want to shoulder that burden, right? Um, I don't know too many atheists that would go so far as to say that. And so they, Rather than recognize that the expression burden of proof actually means the burden of justification, right? the burden of providing reasons for why your belief that there's no God is rational, they, they, instead they, they, people just effectively intellectually whack themselves and just repudiate the idea that they have an epistemological responsibility, if only to themselves, if not to their interlocutors and anyone listening, uh, for justifying uh, their belief, their conviction that that there, there isn't or probably isn't a God. And so I think what's happened is that people hear the expression burden of proof and it just, it just scares them right to their core. They don't know how to, to, to prove that, they're, that all gods don't exist. They don't know how to, how to do that. Well, a lot will fall back on, well, you can't prove a negative. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, never mind. I mean, there's obviously something wrong with that. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but setting that aside for the moment, what people need to understand is that burden of proof just means the burden of justifying, that is the responsibility of justifying what you believe to be true. 
and to the degree that you think it's true. So for instance, and that burden is going to change, depending, it's going to go up and down, it's going to be heavier or lighter, depending on what it is you believe. Now, I happen to think that the burden of justification of atheism is not particularly uh, cumbersome. Uh, but let me give you an example here. I mean, if I say that there's a car in my garage, okay, if I believe that there's a car in my garage, okay, well, the burden of, justifi of justification is I have to have some reasons for thinking that there's a there's a car in my garage. I'm going to have to show, for instance, that there's a car in my garage. I'll have to go out and look and say, yep, there's a car there. I see a car. I can even touch it and, you know, start it up and drive it around. Other people can see it. I can get independent confirmation. There you go. That, that burden of justification is discharged. But if I tell you that the Batmobile is in my garage. And by Batmobile, I don't just mean like some mock-up model that was used in a movie. I mean the Batmobile. You know that thing that in the Batman movies that drives up walls? If I say that that car is in my garage, the burden of proof is going to be significantly higher now because it's not it's not going to be enough to, that there be any old car in my garage. It's going to have to be a rather specific car. A rather extraordinary car will have to be in my garage. And I'll have to demonstrate its extraordinariness. Right? So the burden of, of justifying your belief, okay, how heavy that burden is, depends on the content of the belief, what it is specifically you believe. You know, if, if you define a god as uh, anything you value, well, well, you know, a person might value money, they might value their life, okay, well, that becomes a god. Well, that's a trivial definition of god, right? Uh, but that would be an easy burden to discharge. But if you believe that, that, that god is the creator of the universe, a transcendent being that has all these omni attributes and so forth. Well, wait a minute, that's rather a tall order. I don't know how I'm going to discharge that burden. I'm going to have to have a lot of arguments and a lot of evidence to establish that, right? So I think the burden of justifying something so metaphysically extravagant is rather high, whereas the burden of justifying uh, why it's rational to think that there isn't a God is comparatively low. I also think that there's a that there might be a kind of dare I say naive view about the about who has a burden of proof in the first place. So I think that very often you'll hear this principle that the person making the positive existence claim is the one who has the burden of proof. Um, there are some, I think, quite clear counterexamples to this notion. Um, for example, if you, you know, if you believe that the external, like, let's say you're an external world skeptic. And so you demand that everyone who believes that there's an external world come to the table with some arguments and some evidence for it, right? Mm -hmm. We clearly think that that's silly. And so I think that quite clearly that that's a principle that's not going to work. And moreover, as you noted earlier, you can phrase things in a way where they're merely negative things, like where you say, okay, well, theism is just the lack of a atheistic belief, right? Well, that's not a positive existence claim. Um, there are ways to phrase these things. These are, these are, are merely linguistic contingencies here. Um, and so I do not think that the notion that all, you know, a positive existence claim is that which requires, that that which automatically is burdened with the burden of proof. I think that that's quite clearly a, an insufficient principle there. And I think it makes more sense to speak of burden of justification than burden of proof, because the burden of, the, the expression burden of proof just terrifies people. So that's why I favor the, the use of uh, burden of justification, which is the same thing. It is simply the, the responsibility to justify what you take to be true. And Two ways of saying the same thing. Right, there are two ways of saying the same thing, but, but one strikes terror in the hearts of people and one does not. Um, <laughs> so I favor the one that, that, that will allow people to, to breathe and relax and go, oh, okay. Um, there's a really uh, unfortunate naivete about this expression because people are always saying, who has the burden of proof? You have the burden of proof, I have the burden of proof. Look, that's not how it works. It, this isn't a game of tennis where there's one ball that goes back and forth over the net. Either you have the ball on your side or they have the ball on their side. 
burdens of justification, right? The burden of of evidence, the burden of providing reasons for what you believe, falls on you based on what you believe, not based on what the other person believes. If there are three people in a room and they each have three different views, three different positions, there isn't one burden of of, of evidence or justification in that room. There's three. Each person has right, his or right. own. So when I'm arguing with a theist, I have my burden of, justif of justification. I need to justify what it is I take to be true if we're discussing what, I'm, what, I, what I take to be true. And the theist I'm speaking to has a burden of justification, right? By admitting that I have a burden of justification, I have not absolved the other person, the theist, of his or her burden of justification, right? Now, if we're talking about the other person's views and they say, well, why do you think there's no God? I can, I can say, well, listen, we can talk about why I think there's no God later if you want, or we can talk about it now. We can have two conversations. We can have, at the same time, two conversations, the one about why you think there's a God and why I think there's no God, or we can just have a conversation about why you think there's, there's a God and why I think those reasons are wrong or whatever, um, or we can talk about my view. But the, but the fact that you, would, uh, you are admitting that you have a, an epistemic responsibility to yourself and to others around you to justify uh, uh, why you believe what you believe does not absolve the other person from his or her own burden. And that's the mistake that people make all the time. They're, they're worried that, that, that if they um, accept that, yeah, I have a burden of, of justifying why I think gods are just nonsense, that the other person will just sort of, you know, walk away and and um, ab abdicate uh, their, uh, their responsibility to justify why they think there's a God. And the answer to that is simply don't let them do it. Don't let people who have been saying there's a God and all these dogmas are true off the hook. And when they try to turn the table and say, well, why do you, you believe what you believe? You can just say, well, look, um, we can talk about that or not. Uh, I'm prepared to justify why I think uh, that there is no God, but that won't let you off the hook. We're not going to change the subject here. And so, um, but we have to make sure that we don't make that mistake ourselves, that we don't burden shift. And this is the problem that I see with the the non-theism definition of atheism or the lactheist definition. In fact, I coined the word lactheism um, sort of, you know, somewhat sarcastically and ironically to to, 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 to refer to people who who define atheism as non-theism, but, but do it uh, simply to uh, shirk the burden of justifying their own atheism when they are in fact atheists in the traditional sense, people who think that there's no God. Um, so I, I think people actually come by this honestly. I think people are, are, are just confused though in the main. They are confused about what a burden of justification is. They have this idea that only one person at a time in a conversation could possibly have a burden of justification. And that um, if they simply describe their position in a way that makes their position, that obscures their position, right, that, that, that allows them to hide among the agnostics, the non-cognitivists, the potted plants, the people who've never heard of a god, babies, all of this, that somehow they are not going to have to explain why they believe what they believe. And the difficulty there is that nobody is fooled. No atheist, no theist has ever said, oh, right, okay, right, uh, I see, you're, you're 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 defining your position as a non-position. It's a cheap magic trick. Yeah, uh, I mean they're not fooled, right? Um, and what happens is we end up looking like intellectual cowards. I think we discredit ourselves when we adopt this definition. So I think this definition, this broader definition, is 
out of step with vernacular usage. It's out of, out of step with traditional philosophical usage. It, it is obfuscational. Uh, it shirks the burden of justification. And it sacrifices rigor, precision, and specificity where we already have it. Um, so for all of those reasons, I don't recommend adopting and embracing this, this new definition. I, I don't think it actually does anything to make the other person justify their belief any more than if you simply said, I insist that you justify your position. I'm going to keep pressing you on why you believe what you believe. Might I go further than that and say that I think in, if, if someone is heard someone has heard the claim that a God exists and has, you know, at least assuming the claim has been rounded out with some substance of some sort, I actually think it doesn't even make sense to say that one merely lacks belief because upon hearing that claim, I don't think we can help but hold that claim up to our background knowledge and to at least have some view as to the probability of that claim being true and therefore be someone who either affirms it uh, finds it to be false or to see the evidence as middling. Yeah, I mean, most people are going to, based on their background knowledge, uh, just, you know, balk at the the idea. I mean, if, if I walk up to you and you've never heard of Big, Bigfoot and I start talking to you about Bigfoot, right off the bat, you're, you're, you're either going to be disposed to, to believe, disposed to, uh, to disbelieve it, uh, and by disbelieve I mean reject it as false, uh, or you might find yourself, uh, because of your background, uh, knowledge and evidence that, that's put before you one way or the other, you might come to the conclusion that, you know, I, I can't say. Um, and there's a, there's a difficulty here that, that, um, that there's, a, there's a confounding variable here with respect to agnosticism. Very often when people are on the fence, they're undecided, uh, they say that, well, I don't know. Like if you say, you know, Ozzy, do you want to, you know, eat Italian tonight or do you want to eat Chinese tonight, you know? Um, and I'll say, oh, I don't know. Now, when I'm saying I don't know, I'm not saying I lack a justified true belief. No, what I'm saying is I'm undecided. The expression I don't know is an expression that we use routinely to say I'm indecisive. I have reached no conclusion. I have, I, you know, I, I'm not inclined to accept one over the other. All right? And so people say I don't know all the time. And then a lot of people say, well, therefore agnosticism must be about knowledge. It's not about knowledge. Agnosticism is about belief. It's about an agnostic is a person who, for whatever reasons, good or bad, neither believes that a God exists, nor do they believe that God doesn't exist. I really hate that little bit that you were saying that people do, where they say that agnosticism has to do with belief and Gnosticism has to do with knowledge or something like that. Yeah, well, what, so, what they, yeah, what they try to say is that theism, atheism is about what you believe, uh, but but um, not the words gnostic and agnostic relate to knowledge. That these are two separate planes. Yeah, these are two non-overlapping categories, and I, I think that's that's a crucial mistake right there because I think we would all agree, you, you know, granting Gettier examples that knowledge entails belief. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, can't say that I know something unless I believe it. And so when someone says, well, you know, that, that doesn't have to do with belief that has to do with knowledge. I kind of go, what? Yeah. And I think that that the people who do this don't realize that they're sort of playing into the hands of people who would, who would try to suggest that to be an atheist, you have to know, that there's no God. Look, I'm an atheist. Right, I think right. there aren't any gods. But I wouldn't go so far as to say, I know 
that there are no gods. I mean, I with a hundred percent certainty. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, some some gods I think are just so incoherent that I think I would I would go so far as to say that for some gods. But 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 my atheism in general is not a question of knowing that there are no gods. Right? But I think I have sufficient reasons for thinking that there are no gods of any kind. I am a provisional atheist. They're your claims to knowledge. They're not even my claims to knowledge. They're they're what I believe. Um, I don't necessarily claim to know. So I mean, I, when I say I know, so, you'll know when I when I. I'm claiming to know something because I'll say something to the effect of, I know this to be true, right? Or I know that as opposed to I believe that or it's my view that and so forth. So uh, belief claims and knowledge claims are both truth claims. They're both, I am making a claim about reality. When I say I'm an atheist, I'm saying reality includes no gods, that that gods don't exist. That's a truth claim. I, 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 I hold that that is the truth, right? I wouldn't say it otherwise. But to say that I... I know it isn't is, is incorrect because I, I don't think I know that I, it's what I believe to be true and I have reasons for thinking that it's true and I have reasons that I hope scale with the, the confidence that I have that is the, the, the amount of evidence and quality of reasoning that I have comports with the the degree of confidence that I have in the proposition it's they're not out of step I'm not I'm not massively confident that, that there's no God but have crappy reasons or, or vice versa they that they scale with one another but I think we play into the hands of people when we we try to suggest that Gnosticism and agnosticism are words that just have to do with knowledge. I mean, first of all, that ignores the fact that when Thomas Henry Huxley in the 1850s or 60s coined the word agnosticism, what he was talking about was people, himself in particular, but others, who hold that believing in atheism and believing in theism are both unwarranted beliefs. He wasn't saying, we don't know. He was saying, the belief isn't even warranted. It's, it's, it, it, the agnostic is saying, it would be irrational of me to affirm that God exists, and it would be irrational of me to affirm that God doesn't exist. That's what an agnostic is saying. He's saying not, the- not saying only, oh, I don't know it. They're saying, it would be wrong even to believe it. On, given the state of the evidence. They're saying that there's not sufficient reason to believe either set, either set of claims. That's right. You'd be irrational to believe either one. That's what an agnostic is. Now, that's not my position. And I, I hold a, a, what I take to be a stronger position than that. Okay, And so that's why if you lump me with an agnostic uh, and say that, that he's an atheist too, that person is likely to balk and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I, I call myself an agnostic precisely because that term was coined to distinguish the attitude that I have towards the propositions God exists and God don't exist that is different from the attitudes that you and a theist would hold. Right? That, that's why they balk. They, and, and, and theists know this too. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you're arguing with a theist, very often they, they will regard an atheist with... Um, depending on, on what their theology dictates about atheism, they will often have a very dim and negative view of atheists, but they will be much more genial and favorably disposed towards agnostics. Now, why is that? It's because they understand that agnostics are essentially on the fence. They're not God deniers, but atheists are God deniers. They're not just lacking a belief, like an agnostic is lacking a belief in the proposition. They lack a belief because they deny it. See, I'm a non-theist. I'm a lack theist. 
but I'm a non-theist and a lack theist because I'm an atheist, because I think there's no God, right? All atheists, as I understand them, are non-theists, but not all non-theists are atheists. I think that's right there the most precise way to, to put that. I think that's exactly right. Uh, there's one more thing to say on about the knowledge thing, if I may. Well, one, thing I'm, one more thing I'd like to say about it anyway. A lot of people sort of uh, get, get anxious about this idea about, well, you know, atheism isn't about knowledge, it's, a, it's about belief. And I, I don't have to claim to know that there's no God uh, when, I, when I say I'm an, I'm an atheist, right? Uh, and that's absolutely true. And one thing that you can say to, uh, to people uh, on, on this is just remind them that, look, in order to qualify as a theist, do you have to know that there's a God? Or can you simply believe that there's a God? I mean, surely anyone who believes there's a God, right. whether they have good reasons or bad reasons, whether they claim to know it or not, is a theist. If you think that there's a God, if you think 51% more likely, you know, it's 51% it's likely that there's a God, right? If you're just a little bit more, you know, disposed to think that there's a God than not, and, and, you're, and you're prepared to say, yeah, probably there's a God, right? Is that knowledge? Well, no. And I know lots of people who believe in, in gods and even specific religions who think, yeah, I think this is the right religion. I'm putting my money on this one. Probably this is, this is true. They're not certain. They don't even claim to know, right? So just as you can be a theist and, 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 and not know, but merely believe, so you can be an atheist and not know, right? In other words, when it comes to theism and atheism and agnosticism, they can be held provisionally. You can be a provisional atheist, as I am, or you can be a provisional theist. A provisional atheist is someone who I think is just simply rational, someone who thinks that you know, there isn't a God, or probably there isn't a God, but my mind can be changed in the face of sufficient evidence and reasons. And a provisional theist is someone who thinks, yeah, I think that, you know, probably there's a God, or definitely there's a God, but my mind could still be changed if there were sufficient counter-arguments. Um, and an agnostic is someone um, who can hold uh, provisionally that both positions cannot be asserted on rational grounds, but if you give me uh, sufficient arguments and evidence for one over the other, I could change my mind and I could become either a theist or an atheist. So all of these positions are belief positions that can be held provisionally. None of them have anything especially to do with knowledge. Ozzy, what do you think are the strongest arguments for theism? No, that's a really good question that actually uh, every atheist should should ask him or herself. You know, what do you think is the strongest argument? I mean, obviously, if you're an atheist, you don't think that these arguments are strong enough um, to convince you, and I, I, I certainly don't. Uh, think that there's one strong enough to convince me. Otherwise, presumably, I would, you know, I would be convinced. Uh, but I think some arguments are terrible, and some arguments are, are not bad. Um, the argument that I like the most, not that I think is most likely right, it's not the best argument, but the one I, I used to enjoy, uh, I used to teach undergraduates when I was in grad school, and uh, when I taught the section on the question of God's existence, I, it, of all the arguments, you know, Leibniz is, you know, best of all possible worlds, the Odyssey, and St. Thomas Aquinas is five ways, and all of those proofs of God. When, when we got to Anselm's ontological argument, say Anselm's ontological argument, I love that one the most, uh, because that one is the most ingenious uh, of, of all the ancient uh, proofs that tries to categorically uh, establish that a God exists. So that one is the one that, that sort of that, that tickles me, that I, that I find ingenious, and it's the one that Atheists sort of often poo-poo and, and, and ridicule as merely trying to define God into existence, which is not what it does. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of ingenious. And most of the objections that people give to it, the, 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 the objections that spring to mind most readily are, are in fact, very bad 
objections that are anticipated by Anselm in the, in the argument itself. So that's the one I, I enjoy imparting to people uh, the most, my fellow atheists, to, to sort of challenge them on this. Uh, but I think that the arguments that hold the most promise um, for changing my mind are actually teleological arguments. Um, I think that if there is a creator, um, uh, and, we're, and it is possible to identify that there is a creator, we will have to find sort of the, the fingerprints of God in the creation somehow. Um, and I don't think it's uh, impossible to imagine how that could be. I think it just hasn't happened yet. Uh, so I think teleological arguments, um, um, you know, ev evidence of, of design, evidence of, of proper functions and, and, and purposes in the world, those I think hold the most promise. Uh, I'm not persuaded by, by any species of teleological argument presently, but I think if there's ever one that's going to nudge me in the direction of, of theism, or at least knock me square into agnosticism, it's going to be a teleological argument. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real Atheology Patreon. The Real Atheology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all other music by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We want to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane, Jeremy Zierce, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Andrew Snyder, Jason McLoetta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Soge. Thank you for listening.